A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. Glad that you've joined the program today. Coming up here in uh, just a matter of moments, we're going to be talking with uh, Adam Kraut from the Firearms Policy Coalition about some of the uh, recent legal challenges and some of the upcoming legal challenges that the organization has been filing. If you read Bearing Arms, which hopefully you do uh, each and every day, you have seen uh, uh, some of the uh, stories that we've been covering uh, about some of the uh, recent litigation filed uh, along with organizations like the Second Amendment Foundation. Uh, Actually, a a new lawsuit uh, just filed out of uh, California taking on uh, California's handgun roster. Uh, you know, this is sort of a weird law. California is I th- not the only state because, well, it's the only state. I think the District of Columbia actually uses California's handgun roster to determine what guns are available to be owned by residents. Uh, and in California, this has become a huge issue. Not that it wasn't before, but it's gotten exponentially worse uh, since California passed its micro stamping law a few years ago. And so basically no new models of handguns have been able to be sold in California because uh, the state of California considers unmicrostamped handguns to be unsafe. The problem is there's no way to actually create a micro-stamped handgun under California law. So there have been no new models of handguns introduced in the state. Meanwhile, you've had uh, existing models that were on that roster uh, be pulled by California's Department of Justice. And so the... The, the number of models of uh, firearms that are available for purchase for California residents has shrunk dramatically. This is a slow-motion gun ban. Uh, and again, this is one of the many lawsuits that the uh, FPC uh, has been engaged in, along with other Second Amendment groups. So uh, without any further ado, let's talk about uh, some of these cases, as well as um, some of the upcoming threats. Uh, if Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are sworn in in January as the next president and vice president, uh, take a look at our conversation, look and listen to our conversation with Adam Kraut from Firearms Policy Coalition. Adam, thanks so much for coming to the show, sir. It's good to talk with you today. Oh, yeah. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I got to tell you, man, uh, Firearms Policy Coalition, you all have been exceedingly busy uh, in the legal fronts here lately. It seems like every day uh, we're getting a press release, sometimes two or three press releases a day talking about new litigation that you all are uh, filing. So, Let's kind of talk about uh, the the legal strategy for FPC right now. Obviously, with Justice Amy Coney Barrett uh, on the Supreme Court, gun owners are are feeling more confident than we have in uh, recent years that the court is going to take a case. Um, What is it that you're looking at in terms of, you know, potential cases uh, that that you all are filing right now? Sure. So part of this uh, is our long-term litigation strategy that timeline-wise got accelerated a little bit. Uh, so th- this was stuff that we kind of already had in the works and we're working towards. Um, I-, I mean, really, we're looking at the areas that we think, uh, you know, the court is apt to potentially address. And, you know, there's certain there's certain demographics that would like to see lawsuits in certain areas where you look at it from the standpoint as to logically what would the Supreme Court potentially address next. And I think those are just too far afield from where we are with, you know, the Heller and then subsequently the McDonald decision. Um, so we're, as you can see by the, the things that we've been filing, uh, we're focused on carry p- pretty heavily. Uh, and there's a, you know, in the 18 to 20, uh, as far as, uh, young adults being able to purchase and possess handguns, uh, from a federal firearms licensee, because obviously state law there differs. 
Uh, so things like that are going to be what, what we're currently looking at. Uh, and then there's a few other things up our sleeves that I'm not quite prepared to publicly talk about. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I know when the time comes that uh, you'll, you're more than welcome to come back on and we can talk about those things. You'll see a press release. <laughs> Excellent. Um, you know, and, and when you look at some of the cases, I mean, obviously we had nearly a dozen cases turned away by the Supreme Court earlier this year, which uh, was, was a bitter disappointment for a lot of Second Amendment advocates. Are, 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 what, what are some of the cases that you think could get to the Supreme Court first uh, and some of the issues that the court may be um, confronted with here in the coming months? Where are we in terms of some of these cases that are already making their way through the appellate process? Sure. So there's a, a couple of cases, uh, one of which is one that I was uh, trial counsel on and that FPC uh, has supported. Uh, and that has to do with an individual who is a uh, prohibited person. So the felon in possession ban. Uh, in the circuits are split on how to, how to kind of address that issue. So, for instance, the Third Circuit has said that, um, you know, there is the ability to bring an as-applied challenge, which you basically go into court and say that this prohibition, as applied to me, violates my constitutional rights. So, uh, as a blanket thing, it's not necessarily unconstitutional, but as it applies to me, it is. And the Third Circuit found in uh, the, the Bindrup case, uh, two individuals, that, yeah, that prohibition federally was uh, in fact, um, unconstitutional as applied to them. So we have a case that's like that that is uh, pending a cert petition. Okay. Uh, sorry, I thought it, it looked like it froze up on my side, so I apologize about that. Uh, oh, sorry, no worries. Okay. So uh, we we have a uh, case like that that's pending on, on our side uh, for a cert petition. There's another one that's similar in nature that's out in the Ninth Circuit. Uh, there are a couple carry cases that I believe are also going to be pending cert petitions. So those seem to be the things that are uh, next on potentially the court's docket. Uh, obviously, this last term, it was a disappointment that they didn't take any Second Amendment cases. At the same time, I think that some of the justices who have been saying for some time now that, uh, you know, the this right is being treated as a disfavored right, were reluctant to take cases because they weren't exactly sure how some of those votes were going to go. And I think they were trying to, in some ways, signal that we need to do it. But uh, with the makeup of the court, there was some hesitancy uh, that they might actually do some damage uh, there. So I think with the addition of uh, Justice Barrett, um, you know, we, we might get some different outlook on that stuff. And her... Uh, the felon in possession one is a very interesting one. It's it's a little bit of a uh, niche area. And the fact that she had a very strong opinion uh, in Cantor, uh, which was listed in her Senate um, responses, you know, indicates that that particular issue may be one that, you know, possibly they, they would be more inclined to hear than not. Yeah. And it was it was fascinating to me to see the uh, the reaction from uh, gun control groups to that case, because. You know, when you look at the facts of this case, here was a guy who had been sentenced for a, a nonviolent felony offense. It was basically wire fraud. He was, you know, selling uh, shoe inserts that he said were Medicaid compliant, and, and apparently they weren't. Um, should that be a, a reason to deprive somebody of their right to keep and bear arms for the rest of their lives? You know, gun control groups were out there saying that uh, uh, Justice Barrett's going to let, you know, serious criminals uh, get their guns back. And we can have an argument about whether or not you should have your entire rights restored once your sentence is served. I, I, I tend to fall down along those lines. But uh, the idea that uh, Ricky Cantor uh, was some sort of, you know, dangerous felon 
uh, who should never be allowed to possess a firearm. I mean, that that just didn't fit the facts of the case. Yeah, and the, the felon in possession one is a, is a really interesting area because when you look at the history of, uh, you know, how throughout the United States history this was treated and people were dispossessed of their right to bear arms, uh, you know, research that was done by Joe Greenlee, who's our, our director of uh, legal research at FPC, indicates that um, you know, it, it wasn't just this idea that if you were convicted of a crime, in fact, if you were a peaceable citizen, uh, you were entitled to keep and bear arms. It was those, and it was typically traced to the, the threatened upheaval of, of government where somebody was dispossessed of their right to bear arms. So this idea of uh, law abiding even kind of falls by the wayside, and it was more just that you were a peaceable citizen. Uh, and it's interesting because the courts, is particularly again in the Third Circuit, have taken on this idea of this virtuous citizen test, where uh, they say, like, well, if you've been convicted of a crime, you're clearly not a virtuous person. And it appears through Joe's research that this idea of the virtuous citizen uh, was just scholars in the mid-80s citing one another back and forth until the courts <laughs> picked up on it. So it's not even grounded in, in the, the history of tradition. Uh, and the, the way we like to look at the uh, uh, right, and it's how Heller says to look at it, is text as informed by history and tradition, uh, not the tiered scrutiny approach that the courts have taken and diluted, uh, you know, down to uh, uh, intermediate scrutiny that more or less is along the lines of rational basis. Uh, so there's a whole lot of things that go into it. But to, to go back to the, the point here. Yeah, when we're talking about this felon in possession, uh, and you look at what is encapsulated in the term felon nowadays, particularly under 922 G1, which is the largest subsection of people who are prohibited at the federal level, it includes state law misdemeanors that are punishable by more than two years imprisonment. And when you really start to go down that rabbit hole as to things that the legislature has uh, punished by that, you see a lot of crimes that are a completely nonviolent and these people are dispossessed of their right to bear arms for the remainder of their lives short of you know a pardon expungement or possibly an as applied challenge in federal court you know i i know that uh we still don't you know we're not 100 percent sure who the next president is going to be but uh joe biden is certainly acting like he's going to be sworn in on january the 20th um it looks like Congress is going to be very closely divided. Uh, it's going to be, I think, an uphill challenge for Biden to get uh, some of his legislative items uh, through, including this gun ban and buyback. But we're, we're already seeing signs, Adam, that he's, you know, really going to weaponize the ATF uh, and use the executive branch to target gun owners wherever possible. Uh, is this something that that you all are already it's already on your radar there at FPC? Yeah, we're we're pretty good about keeping our eye on the ball on pretty much everything. Uh, the the nice thing about working for an organization is I don't have to do it all myself. <laughs> there there are guys that uh, specifically just kind of watch the administrative world. There's others that you know are particularly in tune with the court. So yeah, uh, we we are paying attention to what would appear to be you know the Biden administration's moves. Uh, I'm sure you're aware and probably saw the the article on. Uh, it was Ammo Land and, and probably a bunch of various other places as well, uh, which indicated that the, the transition team was already in touch with ATF and they were looking at pistol braces and, uh, you know, what we call non-firearm objects, but are commonly referred to as 80% receivers. Um, they're looking at attempting to get the ATF to take some kind of action on that. Uh, and we're, we're paying very close attention to that. Um, I, I will say to the extent, you know, when the Trump administration came out and said, we're going to ban bump stocks, we said, don't do it or we'll sue you. And uh, they did it. And we were the, the first group in the country to, to sue them over it. Um, 
it was a couple hours after you know we got word that uh, Whitaker, acting attorney uh, general Whitaker, signed that order. So um, that would just say that you know we we keep our eye on things and we we are watching stuff as it progresses. Is it a tougher challenge to uh, to to go after regulations uh, and to go after the you know the rulemakings that uh, that that agencies might do as opposed to you know, going to court and saying, look, this this legislation, this law uh, violates the constitutional rights of American citizens. Yeah, it's I, I don't want to say it's necessarily more difficult. It's definitely different, though. Uh, clearly, one, you're just bringing a straight constitutional challenge, saying that, you know, it's unconstitutional. The other, you get into the world of administrative uh, procedure, the, the rules that surround that, whether or not, uh, you know, it's an interpretive rule versus a legislative rule. Is it a rule at all? Uh, a lot of nuanced things in the uh, APA world. Uh, interestingly enough, that was the one class I hated in law school. Uh, yet here, here I am uh, kind of doing that. Uh, so I, I would say it's different. I, I don't know if it's necessarily more difficult, um, but there it's certainly more nuanced in, in the approach to it than uh, just a straight constitutional challenge. How, how concerned are you about uh, the next administration? Um, you know, obviously, you know, on paper, this was, uh, you know, the most anti-gun presidential campaign in American history in terms of what they wanted to do. Um, at the same time, you know, we've talked again about the the current makeup of the court. Uh, it was a pretty good night, I think, for the Second Amendment in terms of state legislatures. Michael Bloomberg spent a ton of money trying to flip a lot of state houses and was unsuccessful in doing so. You know, on, on, a, on a scale of like one to ten, maybe with uh, with with one being uh, you know, get your canoes and head to the lake with your guns and, and 10 being, you know what, we, we got to the Second Amendment right is, is going to be secure. How do you feel right now about our right to keep and bear arms, uh, you know, over the next four years? Well, I, I'm i not sure I could give you a number on the scale. I, I'm going to give you the lawyer answer of it depends. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you'll have to forgive me for that. I mean, I think it does depend because uh, there on paper, obviously, you know, the proposals and ideas they have are incredibly conservative, right? You know, you want to ban so-called assault weapons and so-called large capacity magazines. You want to make all these things illegal. You want to change the regulatory definition or the manner in which certain things are regulated. But the reality is, is that Congress is what makes laws. And I, I think a lot of people forget the way our system of government is in theory supposed to work is Congress makes the law. The president either signs it or doesn't sign it. And then there's the courts to address whether or not it's constitutional. Now, the president does have some uh, leeway when it comes to the executive agencies. So like ATF, there are obviously things that they could do through regulatory measures uh, or even uh, some backdoor things where they start to change their internal agency position. And that, you know, can and likely will cause some consternation. So I would think if Congress is not set to move on legislation, and I have a hard time believing with it being so evenly split that they'd be able to ramrod something through. Uh, in fact, I think that might concern some of the, the Democrats, uh, you know, and they might not vote along party lines as to gun control because it is an incredibly divisive topic. And some of them still do come from districts where they are getting votes that cross over. However, the administrative agency part is a little more concerning. Uh, there certainly is more leeway for a president to uh, have his policy preferences enacted through that manner. Um, and, you know, we, we did see that in uh, going back to the bump stocks. We did see that in the Trump administration. Uh, and we also did see some things where they backed off some other stuff. So I would say the administrative agency is going to be the place to watch as long as the legislature is not 
predominantly headed towards the uh, Democratic side of the aisle. All right. Well, listen, man, I appreciate you coming on the program and, uh, you know, kind of giving us an overview of what you all are looking at in the uh, weeks and months ahead. And uh, you know what? When you're ready to drop some more press releases, let me know. We'd love to have you back. Well, I'll tell you that we are working very diligently. There are a number of lawsuits that uh, are currently in drafting, and you'll be seeing those being trotted out over the next couple of weeks. Uh, we're, we're not stopping the pedals to the metal, and uh, we're, we're very busy. Absolutely. And before we let you go, I do want to say uh, congratulations on a couple of great new hires. Uh, by the way, Rob Romano, uh, Jen Jakes joining the FPC team, uh, both fantastic additions uh, to the organization. And uh, again, I think congratulations. You guys made some great picks. Thank you. We're very excited to have them. Uh, they're both very talented individuals, and we've been uh, working very hard to build a very talented in-house team uh, for the past you know, almost two years now. Adam Crowd again, uh, the Director of Legal Strategy at the Firearms Policy Coalition. Thank you so much for coming to the program, sir. Look forward to doing this again soon. Great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Appreciate Adam joining us on the program. You couldn't see this, but uh, Adam actually had two dogs in the room with him. Good dogs. Very, very quiet. I was really kind of shocked by that. But uh, we are a very pet-friendly program here. All right. Uh, on to our good deed of the day, our armed citizen story, our recidivist report. Although this is really isn't a recidivist report, but it is. It's a sweetheart of a plea deal. And I can't help but uh, think that the position... Uh, of the defendant in this case may have had something to do with the slap on the wrist received. Yeah, here's the headline. Ex-Senator Virgil Smith gets probation and plea deal for shooting up ex-wife's car while naked in 2015. Now, listen, I, I, he could have faced the same charges if he had pants on. It wasn't going to make a difference in that way. Uh, but Fox 2 in Detroit reporting that back in 2015... Uh, Michigan Senator Virgil Smith was arrested for shooting his ex-wife's Mercedes in the middle of the night. Uh, while butt naked. And finally, on Wednesday came a conclusion, they say. Smith pleaded guilty to, by the way, five years it took to resolve this case. For real? Well, this week, Smith pleaded guilty to malicious destruction of personal property, over two hundred or over $20,000, as well as reckless use of a firearm, and was placed on probation for four months. Yeah, he's off probation in March of 2021. I know. <laughs> uh, David Steingold, Smith's attorney, said my client had been drinking, took that gun, and did something that he'll regret the rest of his life. We're not trying to excuse it. Uh, okay. But then he kind of did try to excuse it. Uh, Steingold went on to say that um, uh, Smith's uh, ex-wife, uh, Anistia Thomas, um, showed up at his house when Smith was with his girlfriend, and that's what prompted Smith to shoot up Thomas's car. Steingold said, quote, had this woman not committed an illegal entry into the house, if she did not come over to her ex-husband's home, knowing that he had a guest in the house and barging her way in, we would not be having this conversation. Okay, look, let's say, by the way, prosecutors dispute that. They say there was a dispute as to why she ended up there and how she ended up there. Uh, it was resolved by way of plea. She had claimed that the two fought after Thomas went to his house and found his new lover in the bed naked. Uh, his ex-wife testified, I snatched the sheet off of her. He pulls on me. We wrestle. He punches me in my face a few times. Mm -hmm. Smith's girlfriend at the time testified that the ex-wife was being violent, saying that uh, she was trying to get to me. All right. So there's definitely he said he he said she said he's no. What would that be? He said she said she said. Right. There's some of that. But let's say let's just say for a second that Virgil Smith was 
there in his home with his new girlfriend and his ex-wife shows up and comes in the house and starts yelling. Are there more appropriate ways to handle the situation than to run outside naked with your gun and start shooting up your ex-wife's car? But uh-huh. there are. Uh, there's a phone right beside you somewhere in the house, right? I mean, probably not in your pockets because you're not wearing any pants. But uh, yeah, there, there are ways to have resolved this without shooting up your ex-wife's Mercedes. Uh, and again, I, I just have the feeling and the sneaking suspicion that um, if we were not talking about a former state senator, we would also not be talking about somebody who managed to resolve this case with just four months of probation. So there you go. Virgil Smith in uh, Wayne County, Michigan. Not a recidivist report, but definitely a sweetheart plea deal. Uh, Our armed citizen story of the day from the state of Florida, Columbia County in uh, Florida, WCJB uh, reporting on an attempted burglary that ended up with the homeowner uh, uh, being able to uh, defend himself and his family from this would-be intruder. So this was over the weekend. Uh, On Saturday, deputies responded to a home on a report of an attempted break-in. Victims shared that they had shot uh, the home invader before the home invader then uh, turned and fled. Uh, Nearby, they found 34-year-old Brandon Slikanwitz of Panama City Beach, Florida. He was suffering from two gunshot wounds to the upper body, taken to the hospital, where last report he remains in the custody of deputies. Uh, Sheriff Mark Hunter said people have a right to protect themselves. He said uh, incidents like this are extremely rare here, but I'm glad that this resident was prepared to defend their home and their family. Right now, the uh, suspect in the case facing, no, I'm not going to try to pronounce his name again, uh, facing charges of attempted home invasion, robbery, aggravated assault with a firearm, armed burglary of a structure, grand theft of a firearm, burglary of conveyance, as well as grand theft. And uh, once he is released from the hospital, he will be booked into the Columbia County Detention Facility uh, on those uh, laundry list of charges. Finally today, our good deed of the day. Story out of uh, Richmond Heights, Ohio. Uh, The Cleveland Plain Dealer reports it was actually a slow night for uh, Jonathan Ross. He was uh, running radar on uh, cars on Richmond Road. But uh, Wednesday, about 1.30 in the morning, as he sat in a cruiser at a uh, a church parking lot, uh, he said, I saw this car, and it looked like they were trying to pull in by the church's exit drive where I was sitting. It's 1.30 in the morning. I'm kind of on high alert when I see a car coming up to me in the middle of the night. Car stops on the side of the road. Young guy gets out. Officer Ross asked, what's going on? And he said, she's having the baby. And uh, Ross said, I'm like, what? Yeah, there's Ross with his uh, a canine partner. He grabs some gloves, approached the car, saw that the uh, baby's head and arms are actually already out, and he said, wow, this is real. He said, I tried to talk her through it, tried to get her to push the baby out all the way. I noticed that the baby was limp and wasn't crying or anything. And he said, once I got her to push the baby all the way out, I grabbed the child, and the amniotic sac was over its head, so I pulled it off its head, turned it over like I would do the Heimlich maneuver, and started patting its back. He gave a little cough and a little cry, and started moving, and that was it. Entire uh, uh, episode took about five minutes. Paramedics arrived on the scene quickly and uh, took mom and dad and the uh, new baby to the hospital. Um, Officer Ross doesn't even know their names. 
He said he thinks that they were a, a couple from Euclid, uh, both uh, late teens, early 20s. He said as uh, he understands that the baby's father had called 911 from home and was given instructions on how to help with the delivery, but instead tried to drive to the hospital. Uh, he said he was in a panic. Uh, Officer Ross, by the way, father of a five-year-old daughter, said he was there during her birth, but he said seeing her birth was nothing like this. The uh, mother was sitting in the passenger seat of a small car, so there just wasn't a lot of room there. Officer uh, Ross, an officer for seven years in Richmond Heights, Ohio, says he's been involved in a couple of medical emergencies before, but uh, never has he had to deliver a baby. Well, in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to uh, lend a couple of hands there. Officer Jonathan Ross in uh, Richmond Heights, Ohio, we thank you, sir, for your very, very good deed. That is all the time we've got for you on this edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. I want to thank you for being a part of the program as well. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the latest Second Amendment news and information from all across the nation. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Town Hall Media on YouTube. That way you'll never miss a program. Or if you like the audio version better, maybe the beard is just a little distracting. I get it. Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you get uh, your fine podcast, that's where you'll find us as well. Because I like to think we're a fine podcast, too. All right. Until we talk again, be well, be safe, be free. And we'll see you soon with another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company.